The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here to sing praise to you, to pray, and now to listen to your word. Will you, in it, please make something of your great name known to us, make something of your call, your mission for us known to us, and will you then move us to follow? So in this passage about mission and following, and I pray that you would do a work that takes us beyond just intellectual understanding of concepts, but that actually for me and for each of us here who knows you would, you, would you help us to know you more deeply? Maybe some here, Lord, or would meet you for the first time today, but most of us, Lord, know you. Will you help us to know you more deeply, to follow more closely, to engage in what you have before us uh, for our joy and for the, the good of the world and for your honor? So make this passage clear, we pray. Teach us this morning, Lord, thank you. Amen. What is the Christian church supposed to do? Both individual Christians in the church and the, the entity as a collective whole, what is the Christian church about? What are we here for? There are a lot of ways we could answer that, a lot of different angles we could take, and if we were to be very careful and very exact, we'd want to be sure to start with a theological answer, something about bringing glory to God. And there's a lot we could say about that, a lot we often do say about that, we've talked about it before. So that's, that's true, but this morning I'm asking this question more in a, in a less theological, more preliminary, quick take sort of way, something that's instructive something that's instructed to us, that, that's more caught than taught. Something that we see in this passage, Jesus' early disciples catching as they observe him and as, as we observe him in his very early stages of his earthly ministry, something he's modeling for us. He called us to be with him. He called the disciples to be with him ministering in a couple of general categorical ways. That's what he launched himself into and called his early disciples to join him in and we see here at the end of Matthew chapter four, modeled for us. Last week we saw Jesus had relocated up into Galilee in the, the very north of the land of Israel. Gone there on purpose to fulfill what Isaiah the prophet said, that a light was going to dawn there in the darkness, to chase out the darkness. Jesus went there on purpose to do that, there in the land of Galilee of the Gentiles. And verse 17 then said, from then on, so starting then and continuing on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what then we see today in our passage here is some of what that looked like in the days, weeks, months, years, in fact, following. So as we're going to look at what Jesus is doing, what he's modeling for us, and then what it means for us. 
we're going to look at today. Let me read the passage beginning in Matthew 4, 18. I'm going to read through the end of the chapter. And then I'll pass back through it to make a couple of observations before, a couple of details before a couple, couple of observations. So this is Matthew 4, beginning in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom in healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and from the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Matthew chapter 4. Galilee itself was an area roughly the size of Utah County and Salt Lake County combined, roughly speaking. Ted smaller, but basically. Nobody's sure of the population, but one ancient historian put it at near the entire population of the state of Utah. So think of all of Utah living in Salt Lake County and Utah County. That's a, that's a substantial population, especially along the trade routes and living around the Sea of Galilee, which is about half the size of Utah Lake and was a prosperous fishing community. That, that region, the whole region was prosperously engaged in fishing. So Jesus is walking there by the sea, and he meets two sets of brothers, three of whom are going to be his key disciples, which is probably why he mentions these guys early and doesn't mention the rest until later. So other Gospels make clear this is not the first encounter that Jesus had with these guys. They had followed him in a less committed way down in the early part of his ministry in Judea, the part that Matthew skips. But as was common for people who kind of touched the, the orb of a traveling teacher, they, they came and they went. And so they'd come, but they'd gone back to Galilee to their home, back to their family businesses of fishing. And Jesus then comes and meets them, specifically chasing them down. They're there engaged in fishing industry, and he calls them, and immediately, it says that twice, immediately they left everything and they started to follow him now as full-time disciples. Following him in the type of work that we see summarized in verses 23 and following. Now, much of the rest of the book is going to show us a lot more of the details of this. This is just a, a snapshot. Very similar to one we see actually in Matthew 9 also. A similar snapshot. Here's what it was like to be Jesus and one of his followers for months and months and years of his earthly ministry, walking throughout Utah County and Salt Lake County, from town to town, city to city, several every day, 
day after day after day after day after day amongst millions of people. Constantly, he would have said the same thing over and over and over again, encountered similar situations over and over and over again. He's largely hanging out in the Jewish pockets of that area, but he went to Galilee of the Gentiles because he also wants to be around Gentile people. He's there constantly interacting with them, and everywhere that he went, people came and people heard. In Gentile Syria and mixed Galilee and Jewish Jerusalem and Judea, massive crowds from all those places were drawn in like fish in a net, drawn up to him and to the disciples who were with him, watching and learning about fishing for people. Which brings us to our first observation. Here it is. Christ's community is made of followers that he calls to come go fishing with him. Christ's community is made of followers that he calls to come go fishing with him. Verse 19 is a statement that Jesus made to Peter and Andrew. Because the situations are so similar, it's probably the same thing that he said to the next two brothers also. He says, follow me. And grammatically, that, that's, that's, that's a command, but it's put in a different way than the other times that we see the word follow in English in the rest of this passage. He's getting at something a little bit different, a little bit deeper here. Massive numbers of people massive numbers of people are following Jesus in this passage, but he's calling these ones to be followers of Jesus. Different. He's calling them to give up a former way of life and identify themselves with him, with Jesus, and all that he's about to become his community, his people. And they understood that, radical as it was, and they embraced it immediately. There's a, there's a point made there. Immediately they got up and they walked away from the business, from the nets, from the boat, from the family, and they came after him. So there's, there's a lot more about discipleship in this book, but, but this much right up front is pretty clear. It is not possible to follow after Jesus and keep a foot in two worlds. I'm going to keep a foot in this boat and I'm going to follow you as you walk off there's a tension there. i got to pick. He says, come, and he walks away. Following, following after him involves making a decision to say, I'm going to lay aside this former life, and I'm going to give myself to following you. And all of my career, and all of my family, and everything that is mine up to this point, I surrender it. I put it right on the table in front of you. Here, Lord. Now, of course... For a bunch of us, he actually calls us right back into those very same things, and we don't change all of the details of our lives. There's a lot that still holds, but it's got to be surrendered and put there in front of him. Here, I'm yours. Follow me, surrendered. That's the call. And over and over and over again, we see that sort of thing in the New Testament, and it's usually followed with a promise of some sort of blessing for me as I follow. Something, something good to come to us. Take my yoke upon you, and you'll find it's easy. 
You seek your life, you're going to lose it. But if you lay down your life for me, you find it. Very often there's this call to follow, to give up, and a promise that there's going to be a blessing that's going to come to you for you. But here, what he's getting at is how he's going to use us. The promise that follows here is what he's going to make us to be, something about usefulness and purpose. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Which is obviously an intentional wordplay on the fact that they were fishermen. In their old life that they're laying down, they fished for fish, and now he's going to make them to fish for men, for people. That phrase is very familiar to most of us here. But we still need to say a few things about it to make sure that we understand it accurately so that we know how to apply it for us. Very often, this phrase, fishers of men or fishers of people, we see it in the connection to evangelism or outreach ministry of some sort, and that's not wrong. But they can get us and others who listen to us talk like this. It can get us kind of thinking along a wrong and unhelpful path. In part, right off, because fishermen and fish, that's a predator-prey relationship. Fisherman and fish is predator prey. And it sets up like, if you add more words into it, Jesus is going to make his followers really good at hunting down with a hook and bait and a lure, hunting down and catching people who don't want to be caught and are trying to avoid it. But we're better than they are, and we get them. Nobody, Christian or not, likes that. Nobody likes that kind of a relationship. Nobody likes being engaged in that on either side of it. And so everybody kind of collectively shrinks away from it. So there's the phrase, and we all kind of say, Ugh. And furthermore, that language can create in Christians a lot of guilt. Because how can you tell a good fisherman from a bad fisherman? Look at the stringer. A good fisherman who knows what he or she's doing and is good at it, successful, has fish. I'm not talking about the catch and release idea here. I'm saying fish. You got fish if you're any good at this, and if you're not, you don't. Empty. Well, how can you tell then a good fisher of people from a bad fisher of people? One has people and one doesn't. Right? For the Christian then, how easy is it to get our own personal Christian goodness and usefulness or obedience or spirit-filledness or right-with-the-Lordness or caught up in whether or not or how many people I've caught, how many you've led to faith in Christ. So don't raise your hand here, but how many here feel a little bit embarrassed or like you are a less successful follower of Christ or that you haven't been obedient to him or that you don't walk in the power of the Spirit because you've never led anyone to faith in Christ? 
Or how many of us here just thought, that's not me, with a little bit of pride? Which camp are you in there? And how many of us, how many of our churches, not catching anyone at first, have resorted to all kinds of hooks and bait and lures and clever strategies because, right, significance and approval and God's obvious favor upon us and the evidence about whether or not you should join us is the numbers that we have managed to accumulate, the people that we have won to ourselves. And the fact that this thing is growing, it's successful, right? So we need numbers. Let's get them somehow or another. Verse 19 can really mess us up. Fishers of men. Can mess up our relationship with the world as we Christians end up really using non-Christians as our projects. Using people out there as targets, projects to prop up our own egos and actually justify ourselves. That's a mess. So let's just wipe all that away and come at this verse, if we can, freshly, as if it's the first time you ever read it. Let's think about what Jesus means by this and especially why he says it. The clearest explanation of what he means when he talks about being a, a fisher of men is the next paragraph. When he shows it, day after day after week after week after month after month. Jesus is fishing like was done in that day, not with a rod and, a, and bait and a lure, but with a gigantic net. He's fishing with a net, drawing into himself as in a great net, massive numbers of people. But there's no coercion or deception. It's all just, it's plain, clear, honest, direct. We'll talk more about this in the next point, but it's, it's an appeal that's right out there in the open. What you see is what you get. But you need to see, so let me draw you in. Like in a big net, I'm going to draw you up close. I'm going to bring you to the spot where you'll, you'll be able to see and hear and understand and evaluate this one named Jesus, he himself. Drawn up to the place of consideration, which then is going to include a, a decision. Like, do I buy this? What do I think about this? Do I want to keep listening and, and follow him to the next stop and hear the next sermon? Or am I good and I'm out? There's a decision that's going to be made there. But I'm going to have to, Jesus says, draw them up close so they can hear this because there is no internet. They've got to come stand here. He draws them in, speaks, and you can be really, really good at fishing then. I assume that Jesus was really, really good at fishing. And you realize he caught almost nobody. Almost everybody in Jesus' net ends up back in the water. You can be really, really good at verse 19, being a really, really good fisher of men, and convert, if I put that in quotes again, nobody. So let's, let's pull that brick out of, of my personal Christian value is tied to how many people I've caught. Let's pull that out and let's throw that one away. 
We're talking about fishing, not catching. Catching is above our pay grade. That's the kind of anglers like him that he means to make us to be fellow laborers, fellow ministers, reaching out with him, alongside of him, hauling in the nets. He wants to make us good at showing and telling what God is like and what God is like, what God is doing in Jesus. Showing and telling truth and love and mercy and grace and righteousness and justice and and all of those Christian, Christ-like, biblical characteristics to show them in our own lives and to show them in a community of people who are following after Jesus, have laid aside their previous lives and said, I don't need to find my life in that. I find my life in him. Watch. Who are showing that and telling it. That's fishing in his mind. And we can be really, really good at that, successful at that, without having to land anything on the beach. That's fishing. But why does he tell us this? It's actually a little more important for us to realize here. Why does he tell us this here? Right out of the gate. I mean, it's, it's right out of the gate. Come follow me. Here's what we're going to do. Why? To set our priorities. To explain right out of the gate, what we're supposed to be doing. In part. Because we have to understand this as, if we're thinking only evangelism, we have to think of it only as part. Because there's a lot that builds into all of this. But he tells us a, a gigantic piece of our priority right off. Jesus came to seek and save the lost in the world. And if we're going to follow after him, we're going to be following him on a path of seeking and saving the lost. That's what he's up to. That's what his followers are going to be up to. Now, there's, there's a lot more we could say about this, but right out of the gate, we've got to see this first. He calls us to follow him. He calls us to come go fishing with him. So, do you see the lost world like Jesus does? In need of a shepherd. Harassed and helpless. In need of a good and wise and righteous and gracious and loving shepherd. A king, that is. And in need of forgiveness because of all the hundred ways people have wandered away. Forgiveness. In need of, of something about wisdom so they know how to walk and, and truth and, and hope and life. In other words, as in need of Jesus. This Jesus, the one in the Bible. Do you see the world like that? In need. Something fundamental about why we are still here involves doing what we can to bring people up close to him, to see him accurately and what he's about accurately, that they may meet him and find him. It's what we do. I wrote all that. I see this passage. I just said it out loud. And the immediate way that I have to respond to that is... 
not first to go send a text to a friend that I need to go witness to. Nope. The first way I need to respond to that, and maybe you, is to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. I talked about that more last week and when we talked about it with John. And appropriately so, think about the, the things in me that are wrong, that it's kind of about me, but here's something in me and maybe in you, probably in you, that's wrong about you in relation to the world. Do you see people, comma, do you love people like he does? My first response to that is, <laughs> nope. And that's wrong. Repent. Lord, help me to see them, millions of them, in every town, in every village, along the road, by the side of the lake, lost, harassed, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I know the shepherd. Somehow, can I help bring the two of them up close so that they can see him and make a call? What happens is above my pay grade. But repentance is probably where we need to start. It probably isn't our highest priority. We leave the results to God, but we have to fish. So how do we do that? What's that mean? That's the second observation. Christ-like fishing involves showing and telling the good news of his reign. Christ-like fishing involves showing and telling the good news of his reign, R-E-I-G-N. So, verse 23 and following shows us the day-in, day-out ministry of Jesus, what he did throughout Galilee with his disciples right there with him, and the obvious implication is that he's showing them this is what it means to fish for people. And though a bunch has changed, we've got different technologies, we've got a different time, we've got a different physical context, we're not Jesus, nor even an apostle. So there, there are differences, but the basic setup is still the same. Show and tell, it's still show and tell. And be sure to notice, as we walk through this, be sure to notice the twin aspects there this, of this fishing or this, this outreach ministry. It's, it's both and. Not an either or. So we're going to see two things here. And as we do, I invite you to be, be thinking about yourself. Maybe how God has gifted you in one way, maybe a little more than the other. Or given you opportunities that maybe lean one way a little more than the other. It's, it's good to note that because God made us all certain things, certain ways. and Did that because he wants to use that, utilize that. I've sometimes described these two aspects as a, a forehand and a backhand in tennis. And so if I'm saying, what, what are you good at? What do you kind of find yourself often doing? Maybe that's your forehand, what you are naturally best and strongest at. So any tennis player probably tries to move to hit as many forehand shots as he or she can because it's going to be stronger. But if you neglect the backhand and give up every point that's to the left, you're going to lose. We need, we need both, forehand, backhand. So notice what your strength is here, but it's a both and. For every individual Christian, 
and especially for a whole church community as we minister together. So both of these things inform how we think about outreach here in our church. Speak the message lovingly and do good lovingly to the people who are around you. So those are the two things. Keep those in mind as we look down at the specifics. It says, Jesus taught in the synagogues. Because of the courtesy given to a traveling rabbi, as Jesus would show up with a, an exploding reputation, Jewish congregations, formal congregational settings, they would have invited him to teach, either from the, the normal reading of the day or from whatever else was on his mind. He was a big deal. So he taught often in Jewish congregational formal settings. And it says, also, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. Probably referring to what we often call itinerant preaching. Something that's on the spot, just wherever. He's around in all kinds of different settings, not formal Jewish congregational settings. He's on a hillside, he's at a lake shore, he's there and others are there, and so he takes an incident or a request or or a need and launches from there and begins to proclaim. Or another way to put that would be to preach. So what's he preaching? It says, the good news of the kingdom. The good news about the kingdom of heaven, specifically that it has arrived in me, says Jesus. It's here, now. We've talked about this a few times, back in chapter 3, even last week in verse 17. The kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom, it's not a physical place, it's the reign of the kings. Wherever the king's reign is, the kingdom is right there. The kingdom, we'll see later, it reigns in our hearts. It's, it's wherever the king reigns. And the king has now arrived, so the kingdom has begun, and it's here, and that's really good news. And obviously, as he talks about the reign of the king, it's going to be a wide range of subjects. He's going to have to talk about the character of God, what, what this God is like, and his goodness, and his righteousness, and his justice. And that's going to end up speaking about human sin, and how God and human sin brings a conflict here as we live in unrighteousness and live in, in failure. And, and then he's going to show God's graciousness and God's mercy in reaching out to fallen people to, to restore them and to provide forgiveness and to, to fix what has gone wrong and to be like light chasing out darkness and put back together all the, the corrupted world and all of that stuff. The reign of Christ has dawned. All of that stuff. Not specific, just all of that. This way and that way and this way and that way. And then we would now have to add in, because it's now happened, the good news of the kingdom and how it can be good for us and not condemning. We'd have to add in news of the cross and the resurrection. Jesus, of course, did not talk much about that in the beginning because nobody understood that and people got way off. He mentioned it more as it drew closer. But we now have to make that a front and center piece of how does all of that about God's character and, and God's big work here and, and the renewal of the world and people, how does that happen for our good and not for our destruction? The 
cross. Raised to new life. We'd have to talk about all of that too. That's the good news of the kingdom. Probably not very different from what Jesus would have said in the synagogue. It's just starting in different places and coming at it from different angles. But all of that needs to be spoken clearly. Because if you stop and think about this, you've done this, maybe not quite so formally, but if you were to just walk up to probably anybody in the office or the classroom in the neighborhood where you spend most of your time and said to them, ask them a question, what is the basic core message of the Christian faith? They won't know. Try. Just ask them. I, I bet you a dollar you'll get something, if, if they answer, you'll get something about being a good person and God accepting you, which is not the core message of the Christian faith. But people think it is. They have not been drawn up to know the true Jesus. We don't, we don't control how they respond to that, but they're not going to respond to it correctly if they don't know it. And if you were to ask them further, you'd say, well, so who is this Jesus and what is his reign like when he rules the world? What is that like and why is that good? You won't get the right answers because people don't know. You realize that, right? People don't know. A whole lot of this conversation, once we get past some of the, the the problematic ways we think about fishing for people, a whole lot of this conversation that touches on outreach, it feels like, because we know there's, there's a little bit of, a little bit of, when we step into this with other people. For me, a really interesting and helpful piece of this is to realize they don't actually know what I'm going to talk about. They think they do but they don't. It's actually a, a pretty good spot to be in to say, like, actually, I disagree with that too. <laughs> what you think and you don't like, I don't like it either because it's wrong. Really? Yeah, actually, the core Christian message is something totally different. Actually, completely opposite. Really? Have you ever had that conversation? It's actually very interesting and it's needed because people don't actually know the truth about the kingdom of God, let alone why that could possibly be good news. People don't know. It needs to be told clearly and shown. Jesus is also showing, it says he's healing every disease and every affliction among the people, things like verse 24, which is an attempt to be completely wide and all-inclusive. All kinds of stuff from all kinds of places, things that demons cause and other stuff that's natural, things people were born with, every kind of affliction, it is intentionally vast, wide, and indiscriminate. Anyone from anywhere 
Jesus had indiscriminate compassion and mercy, not just towards those who were his followers, who were going to trust him. He didn't first ask them, what do you think about the message I just told? Okay, now then I'll do good to you. Disconnected. Indiscriminate compassion and mercy. Now there's something that's very specific and very purposeful about this type of doing good. Healing ministry in the Old Testament was was predicted that when the Messiah came, you can read about this in places like Isaiah 35, Isaiah 61, but when Messiah came, one of the markers would be that he would heal people. The, The lame would walk, the blind would see. You've heard those passages before. That was predicted, and so Jesus is in a very clear way identifying himself. Watch. The predicted flood of miraculous healing is happening right now because the kingdom is here. I have arrived. It's me. It's very specific, very closely linked to him. And obviously, because that period of time happened and is now over, we don't do that today. God does heal sometimes today. James tells us to pray, says God heals. I think I've seen God miraculously heal, but it's not at all like that, where massive crowds indiscriminately, dozens after dozens after dozens are healed. That doesn't happen because that period has passed. So there's something there that's different. However, there's something that's the same. Why Messiah would do that is that Messiah is about, when he comes, his kingdom is about reversing the effects of the fall, about overturning sin and its destruction. And he wants to show it in this clearly miraculous way to show there's the one who has the power of God. But the same principle of let's reverse, let's overcome what sin wrecked and turn it around. That kind of concern for harassed and helpless sheep that abides always in Christ and in Christ's people. So we sometimes put a word on this sort of thing. We call it mercy ministry or compassion ministry. It's, it's the second of the two aspects, word and deed. And we've got to be about deed. That in compassion and mercy turns over, turns back, chases away the darkness and does good to people, relieves them of suffering, does good to the city in which we live in the name of Jesus. So word and deed, those are the two aspects. In each of us, individually, and our church corporately, we're to be about both, showing and telling. That's how we fish. That's how we draw people up to see Jesus. We explain in word clearly, and we show what the kingdom is like how sin is reversed and good to people is done. So I said at the beginning, think about yourself here. Where are you in that? Word and deed, showing and telling. Which one are you better at, do you know? Which one are you better at? Which do you find yourself most commonly having opportunity for? Feed that, fuel it and work on your back end. 
You won't ever be as good in the back end as you are in the forehand, but, we've, but we need both. And we need to be thinking about all of us together. Very often, very often you'll, you'll find that, that maybe it's a church small group, maybe it's the whole church gathered, that often there are people who are good at one thing and teamed up with people who are best at the other. They provide a, a really effective way of drawing people in and showing them, and then someone else who's there can explain it. That's a good team. So know what you're good at, know what your friends around you are good at, and team up with them. But what we're about together is blessing the city in which we live, doing good to the people around us, mercy and compassion indiscriminately, even when, especially when, the world around us does not respond well. I, I kind of want to right here put a footnote to several sermons from 1 Peter. So people who were here during that time, you can kind of think back to 1 Peter. Doing good to those around you that they may glorify God in the day of his visitation, ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. A thread that runs through 1 Peter. We want to do good and explain that's bread and butter evangelism, and it's not that hard. What's hard is caring about it. That's what's hard. I don't usually want to be bothered. I got other stuff to do this afternoon. for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, here's my life. I'm a follower. My agenda, what I got going on, yeah, I, at the door, I had to set all that aside. You're right. I lose my life. I'm a follower, a fisherman. You too. Now the good news, the promise to you is that you will find your life. You will, he promised, you will find your life. No one ever gave away their homes, their families, their money and didn't find it a hundredfold given back to them. Jesus is explicit and full of promises like that. You will find your life. You will. But you'll find it following him as he walks the path fishing for people seeking and saving the lost in word and in deed. That's what we're to be for. That's what we're about while we're still here. Maybe repentance is in order for you. It is for me. So let's pray. Father, would you help us, me, to move towards what we just saw. Help us, Lord. Give us eyes to see the world around us, people around us, to care about them. To be relieved of any need to coerce them or in, in some way use them, but, but to love them and, and to try to help them. Lord, would you provide opportunities for that? Would you make it genuine and good? Would you bless people around us? Use us in the process, but bless people around us. 
You show them who you are and show them your goodness and do good to them, please. Your church, this is a core piece of what we are about, so help us to do it faithfully. Make us fishers of people. Thank you, Lord. We trust you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.